You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today, we are going to kick off one of the great stories of survival in the history of exploration, and that is Ernest Shackleton's Endurance Expedition. Last time, we left Endurance departing England in early August of 1914, just as war was breaking out across Europe. Shackleton was troubled at the idea of continuing with the expedition, with a great conflict looming over the continent. But most people believed that the war would be a short-lived affair, months, not years. The last major war in Europe had been the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. The Prussians had crushed the French in six months and in the process formed the German Empire. Most people expected a similar affair. The armies of Europe would go out into the field, fight a few battles, and the diplomats would take it from there. Thus, the British government told Shackleton to proceed with his expedition, and so south went endurance. Now, some notes about this part of our podcast. First, the expedition is really called the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, but I will refer to it as the Endurance Expedition. Second, a reminder that the expedition consists of two facets. There was Shackleton's team on Endurance, and another team heading to the McMurdo Sound region. This I'll call the Aurora Group, or the Ross Sea Team. We are not going to talk about the Ross Sea Group today, but we will next time. But know that this story is really about Shackleton, so the Ross Sea Team story won't be super in-depth. It's still really important, and a great story, but it's not our primary focus. I compare it to the South Magnetic Pole Team story we discussed back in Episode 5 of this series. Third, Endurance is going to be a long story, so expect multiple episodes about it. We will segment things out logically, so I hope that each episode will be a nice contained story in of itself. Fourth thing I want to mention is the source material. There is a lot of stuff written about Shackleton and this expedition, but we'll lean heavily on the book Endurance, written by Alfred Lansing back in 1959. I mention this because Lansing's Chronicle is, perhaps, the greatest book about an explorer that I have ever read. It is a masterpiece for several reasons. When Lansing wrote the book, he was able to draw not just on the newspapers and diaries and journals from Shackleton and his team, but he was also able to actually interview survivors of the expedition, and this is huge. Oftentimes, books and stories written in Shackleton's life were reticent to be entirely honest about the events. It was just bad form to be critical of others while they were still alive. And thus, in 1959, with most of the participants dead or aging, and the Endurance Expedition's decades in the rearview mirror, Lansing could be more honest than those writing 40 years earlier. And the participants who were still alive, well, they could be more honest as well. As I said, the result is a fantastic book. 
It is gripping and harrowing and inspiring. We will talk more about its impact at the end of the Endurance story. Fifth thing, I have put a map on the website, so if you want to get a feel for the where's and what's in all of this, go check it out, explorerspodcast.com. I also want to note that I put some links to some video on the site as well. This is footage actually shot on the expedition, and it's really amazing stuff, not something we've seen before. You can see Endurance, Shackleton, the men, and the ice, and it really gives you a feeling for the subject matter. I highly recommend checking it out. Again, get that on the website, explorerspodcast.com. So all that said, let's keep things rolling. On with the show. Shackleton's ship, Endurance, would depart England on August 8, 1914, just as the first shots of World War II were being fired in Europe. The destination was Buenos Aires, Argentina. Shackleton would stay in England, trying to raise last-minute funds. Shackleton was, at this time, to be honest, a tired man. He was 40 years old, but his health was not great. He drank too much and had put on weight. His lifelong smoking habit was not any help either. And while he had gotten his expedition underway, he was fighting creditors and scrounging for cash. And his relationship with his wife, Emily, had been strained as rumors of his affairs with other women were rampant. He would lament the situation with his wife, blaming himself, rightfully, for the mess. Another expedition, he felt, would reset their relationship as well as his weary-minded body. He would say, quote, Perhaps the Antarctic will make me young again, end quote. On September 25th, Shackleton would sail to Buenos Aires to rendezvous with Endurance. Before leaving, he would consult with several of his most important supporters, including Scottish millionaire James Card, and get their assurance that he wasn't doing anything wrong by heading south with the war now heating up. His backers would give him their blessing to continue, and Shackleton felt relieved that he wasn't abandoning his nation. Shackleton would arrive in Argentina in October and find things were in a bit of a shambles. Endurance had a leak, and some of the men had proven to be problematic. The captain of Endurance, 42-year-old Frank Worsley, while an excellent sailor, was not an assertive leader, and it allowed discipline to lapse. Shackleton would immediately set out to get things back on track. He cut through the Argentinian red tape and got what he needed to get Endurance repaired, and four sailors and a cook were fired and replacements brought on board. The men quickly came to understand why Shackleton was called the boss by those who knew him. Now, another issue to arise was the fact that Endurance could only hold 130 tons of coal. If you remember, the vessel had never been designed as a cargo ship, and thus Shackleton would undertake some adjustments to increase space. This would allow them to take on 160 tons of coal, better, but still short of the 200-plus tons that Shackleton had desired. These adjustments would delay their departure. And even from South America, money would be a problem when Shackleton simply ran out of cash. He would have to scramble to find funds and cut corners to get some needed supplies. The other problem that reared its head was Shackleton's health. He was worn down and having chest pains and suffering from a shortness of breath. However, he refused to allow either of the expedition's doctors to examine his heart. These health issues were likely the result of stress, anxiety, and exhaustion. What Shackleton really wanted to do was get moving and put the petty worries of the real world behind him. Endurance would finally depart on October 26th. The destination was South Georgia Island, located in the South Atlantic Ocean, and the jumping-off point to the Weddell Sea of Antarctica. So before we get into that voyage, I want to outline Shackleton's plans. He wanted to go to South Georgia Island, and from there head to the Weddell Sea. There, Endurance would deposit a team with dogs and sledges and supplies at Vassal Bay, which had been discovered by the German explorer Wilhelm Filchner a few years earlier. Shackleton would lead a six-man team to the South Pole, a journey of around 1,000 miles, or 1,600 kilometers, through completely unknown territory. 
They would use teams of dogs for the journey, just as Amundsen had done on his recent successful run to the Pole. From the South Pole, the team would then continue across the continent, go down Beardmore Glacier, and onto the Great Ice Barrier. From there, it was on to McMurdo Sound in the Ross Sea. Now, at the same time as Shackleton was heading south, another team would depart from Australia and land at the old haunts of Shackleton and Scott in McMurdo Sound. This team would set up a camp and travel onto the Great Ice Barrier and lay supply depots from the base of Beardmore Glacier to their camp on the Ross Sea. The idea was that Shackleton's team wouldn't have to carry supplies to cross the entire continent, just enough to get to the pole and then down Beardmore Glacier. Once they got down the glacier, they would have supplies waiting for them for the final leg of their journey. It was a very ambitious plan, especially for Shackleton's team, who were going into territory that was mostly unknown. Now, before departing Buenos Aires, Shackleton and his team would study the reports of a Scottish scientist who tied the density of ice in the Weddell Sea area to the rainfall in Chile and Argentina, which was about 2,000 miles away, or 3,200 kilometers, and to the north. Well, after looking at the data, there was cause for concern. James Wardy, the expedition's geologist, studied the reports and concluded, quote, It looks as if the pack will be very heavy this season, end quote. No matter, Endurance would set sail for South Georgia Island on October 26th. A few days out, they would find a stowaway, 19-year-old Pierce Blackborough. Blackborough had tried to join the expedition, but had been turned down, so he had hidden on board. Shackleton, impressed by the young man's spirit, hired him, although he did jokingly tell Blackborough, quote, If anyone has to be eaten, you will be the first, end quote. Shackleton Endurance would arrive on South Georgia Island on November 5th. It is actually a part of a chain of islands called the South Sandwich Islands. At the time, it was one of the most remote and desolate outposts in the British Empire. But because of its location, 900 miles, or 1,450 kilometers, from Antarctica, it was called the Gateway to the Antarctic. Even today, the island is inhospitable. It is about 100 miles long, or 160 kilometers, and 22 miles wide, or 35 kilometers. In Shackleton's time, there were seven whaling stations scattered along the harbors of the island's northern coast, Grit Beacon being the main one. The island is mountainous, with some peaks nearly 10,000 feet or 3,000 meters high, and more than half of the island's interior was not mapped. Whaling was what the region was about, and despite it being a British territory, almost everyone there was Norwegian. Endurance stocked at Grit Beacon, which reeked of rotting whale flesh. It was so bad, the joke was that you could locate South Georgia Island by its smell. Now, upon arrival, Shackleton immediately began to take on supplies, including coal, clothing, and food. It cost him 400 pounds, but as he was out of money, he convinced the locals to take credit. Also, Shackleton would talk to the Norwegian whalers, who warned him that the ice was already forming to the south, an ominous sign. Some urged him to wait till next year, as they feared he would never make it through the ice pack. It was a warning that Shackleton had no intention of heeding. Now, even as Shackleton prepared his ship, he understood that he was behind schedule and things would have to change. He had wanted to get to the Weddell Sea and his targeted landing spot, Vassal Bay, by the end of November, but the issues with the ship and acquiring supplies had delayed him, and that would render a crossing attempt this year impossible if he started too late. A reminder, Shackleton was planning on the crossing to take approximately 120 days. That's roughly four months. The ideal time to travel is November through February. After that, it's a matter of how the weather holds. Thus, at the latest, Shackleton probably needed to start by early December, and that was pushing things. But as he sat in Grit Beacon, he knew that getting to Vassal Bay by the end of November was impossible, and thus Shackleton moved on to Plan B. 
He would sail south to Vassal Bay, set up his camp, and spend the winter on the continent. Endurance would slip north before the ice trapped her. Shackleton would then depart for the Pole early the following summer. It meant another full year in the Antarctic, but it was the safest thing to do, and not unexpected. Many had known that this option was the likely outcome. So Shackleton would wait at Grit Beacon for a month, getting everything ready for departure and hoping the ice conditions would improve. By the way, it was here that Shackleton would entertain the idea of starting a whaling company. He quickly understood that there was money to be made in the whaling industry. Honestly, it was probably the best business idea he ever had. Now, I do want to take a moment to talk about Shackleton's plans for sailing to Vassal Bay. And that's to say that what he had in mind wasn't just pulling dates and numbers out of his butt. And that's because he had an actual real-life reference as to the behavior of the ice in the Weddell Sea. And this was from the German expedition under Wilhelm Filchner. In 1911, Filchner had departed from South Georgia Island on December 11th. They had penetrated into the Weddell Sea and reached Vossel Bay at the end of January. In late February, Filchner's ship, Deutschland, would depart the area, but by March 15th, it would be firmly trapped in the ice. This timeline gave Shackleton a rough idea of what to expect as to the behavior and thickness of the ice pack. But let's remember, signs were pointing towards heavy ice this season. And another thing we always must remember about polar travel is that the weather is wildly unpredictable. This makes it immensely dangerous. So all that said, Endurance would depart South Georgia Island on December 5, 1914. There were 28 men and 60 dogs. The decks were littered with bags of coal, and whale meat, to feed the dogs, was hanging from the rigging. They were roughly 1,500 miles, or 2,400 kilometers, from Vassal Bay in the Weddell Sea. Within two days of sailing, they would have another ominous sign when ice was sighted. Shackleton would write, quote, I had not expected to find pack ice nearly so far north, end quote. The Norwegian whalers had been right, and what they were encountering was not just a few floating bits of ice. This was an ice pack miles wide and several feet thick. Endurance could not just bust through it. They would have to skirt the edges of the pack for two days to find a way around it. Going forward, the ocean was a mix of ice and open water. Shackleton described the ice as a jigsaw puzzle. The ship could plow its way through some of it, but mostly it had to pick its way around the various bergs and flows. And so, Endurance slowly wove its way through the ice pack as she pushed south. However, there were two issues. One, she was going slower than anticipated. In the open sea, Endurance could cover 200 miles in a day, but by Christmas, she was averaging less than 30 miles a day due to the ice. And the second issue was that she was using up coal faster than desired. Coal was critical to keep the boilers running so that Endurance could keep moving forward and be able to break through any ice when needed. Without coal, the ship was dead in the ice. So onward went Endurance. The plan was to go down the east side of the Weddell Sea until they reached Fossil Bay. This would not be easy, and Shackleton knew it. The Weddell Sea was legendarily treacherous. It was one million square miles of mostly impenetrable ice. The ice of the Weddell Sea flows in a giant semicircle from the east coast to the Antarctic Peninsula in the west. Again, take a glance at a map and you'll get a feel for what I'm talking about. But if you can't, just know that the Weddell Sea is a huge bay, over a thousand miles wide, or 1,600 kilometers, and filled with ice. The ice slowly moves in a circular motion around the bay. So, as Endurance came upon more and more ice, Shackleton would make another important decision. He was concerned about the ship. She just didn't handle that well. As a reminder, Endurance was built with strength and power in mind. Its design was to break through the ice. However, even before departing South Georgia Island, Shackleton had shared his concerns about the ship in a letter to his wife, saying, quote, 
I would exchange her for the old Nimrod any day now except for comfort, end quote. The issue was that if Endurance deposited Shackleton and the shore party at Vassal Bay, the ship still had to sail back out of the ice pack, and that was the problem. Shackleton was just not sure Endurance could accomplish that, especially with coal running low and the ice thickening up so early. Thus, it would lead him to another big decision. He would allow Endurance to get iced in for the winter, just as Scott had done with Discovery back in 1901. In the shelter of Vassal Bay, the ship wouldn't get carried by the moving ice of the Weddell Sea, and would be able to depart the following summer when the ice pack was least dense. The ship was well provisioned for a long spell in the ice, and they would be able to hunt fresh game, including seals, sea lions, and penguins. It was a risky move, but Shackleton felt that Endurance couldn't make it out of the Weddell Sea as the ice was just too thick and only getting worse. Anyhow, on Christmas Day, the men would have a big celebration. For dinner, there was turtle soup, fish, pudding, mince pies, dates, and figs, plus rum and brandy and stout. The men would top off the festivities with singing and music. Five days later, Endurance crossed the Antarctic Circle, and then the next day, the ice thickened dramatically and the ship barely was able to free itself. It was a scary moment, not just because they had almost gotten stuck, but it was the fact that it wasn't even January and the ice was so thick and unforgiving. Shackleton had expected to be able to push into the Weddell Sea for many more weeks, maybe even months. It was a scary sign. The ice, by the way, was so stable at times, the men were able to bring the dogs out onto the ice pack so they could run around and get some exercise. In the second week of January, Shackleton would have some good luck. The ice flow broke up, and Endurance found itself in open sea. Regarding breaking through the ice pack, Captain Worsley said, quote, We felt as pleased as Balboa when, having burst through the rainforest of Darien, which is modern-day Panama, he beheld the Pacific, end quote. Worsley would then add, quote, I was thrilled that I had been able to listen to the two-part podcast series on Spanish conquistador Vasco Nunez de Balboa on the Explorers podcast. It was a great story, end quote. Okay, he never said that. But with the mention of Balboa, I couldn't pass on the chance to promote one of the earliest shows I had ever done. Anyhow, Endurance would have a hundred miles of good sailing before running into more ice. I want to stress again the unpredictable nature of the ice. I think we get this vision that the ice is a single entity. Once you hit ice, it's all ice going forward. But that's not true on the ocean. As we have seen, the ice pack can gather and be incredibly thick for hundreds of miles, and then suddenly just open up, leaving open sea for miles and miles. It simply makes predicting what was ahead a very sketchy thing. On January 10th, Endurance would sight land for the first time. This part of Antarctica was called Coatsland, and it forms the eastern shore of the Weddell Sea. From Endurance, the men would see huge ice cliffs, making it impossible to go ashore. Shackleton called it the barrier. For five days, Endurance would skirt along the Antarctic coast, and then on January 15th, the ship would reach a natural bay next to a glacier that was disgorging its flow into the ocean. The men called it Glacier Bay, and it was about 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, north of their intended destination, Vassal Bay. The location was intriguing. It offered a relatively safe place for Endurance to ride out the winter, as the bay would not be subject to the worst of the ice flows and there was natural protection from the southwesterly gales. Also, there was a slope that offered an easy climb up onto the inland ice. Honestly, the bay would have been a good place to set up winter quarters, and Captain Worsley encouraged Shackleton to do so. He said the ice was thickening quickly, and he didn't know how much further they could push into the Weddell Sea. But Shackleton was reluctant to stop. If he set up winter camp here, that meant he would have to travel an additional 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, the following spring on his cross-continent trek. That meant upwards of another two weeks. 
With that in mind, Shackleton would elect to push on, a decision he will regret. Endurance would weave its way through the ice toward its destination, but the ice pack often blocked them. They would have to plow through the ice or go around it. Four days later, on January 19th, Endurance would get trapped in the ice. The ship was about 60 miles, or 100 kilometers, from Vassal Bay. They would not move for over a week, and then on January 24th, open sea would suddenly appear about 150 feet, or 45 meters, in front of Endurance. This was the ship's chance. Shackleton fired up the boilers and ordered a full head of steam to be raised. They even unfurled the sails to assist with the breakout attempt. For three hours, Endurance struggled forward, but she was so gripped by the ice, she didn't even move a foot. The truth is that Endurance had run into some bad luck. There was a strong and steady wind from the north, and it was pressing the ice, along with Endurance, toward the coast. Only a strong southerly gale could free Endurance now. There was some talk of trying to march across the ice to Vassal Bay, but that was quickly dismissed. It wasn't just supplies and food that the men needed to transport, but the timber for the huts and the heavy gear that was critical to surviving the upcoming winter. Thus, Shackleton and the men could only wait and hope the ice would break up. Over the next weeks, everyone, no doubt, could only think about the fate of Wilhelm Filchner's ship, Deutschland, which had drifted in the Weddell Sea ice flow for eight months before finally breaking free. Was that their fate? eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. After a month of being frozen in the ice, Shackleton and the crew would get their breakout opportunity when on February 14th, which was Shackleton's 41st birthday, the ice around Endurance suddenly opened up. And in the distance, about a quarter of a mile away, there was an open sea lane. The crew went into a frenzy. The boilers, which had been turned off to preserve coal, were fired up, while many of the men went to work on the ice with saws, chisels, and picks, trying to help cut a path to the open sea. At first, the ice was only a couple of feet thick, but it would gradually thicken. Endurance would repeatedly try and ram the pack ice, trying to plow through it. The goal was to cause the ice to start to crack. If you did that, you could then force the ship's bow into the crack and try and pry the ice open. Unfortunately, the ship could never really crack the ice. One of the major reasons was that Endurance was starting from a standstill. This meant that she wasn't hitting the ice at a high speed, making its attempts less effective. The result was Endurance only getting about a third of the way through the ice pack into the open sea. By the next day, the effort would be abandoned. The men were exhausted, and the ice in front of them had grown to as thick as 18 feet, or 5 meters or so. And around the ice, the pack was again thickening and pushing against Endurance. Any hope of escape was now gone. On February 17th, Endurance would reach 77 degrees south, the furthest south the ship would attain. A week later, with the ice pack only growing thicker by the day, Shackleton would admit that they were prisoners. The ice would be their home for at least another eight to nine months. At this point, the ice drift was taking them in a northwest direction, but in an unpredictable zigzag-like fashion. At times, they would even catch sight of land as they got within 20 miles of the coast, or 32 kilometers. 
Shackleton's hope was that the ice would carry endurance to the north and eventually get freed, and they could head back to South Georgia Island, where they could refit the ship, take on provisions, and make another go at things. Now that they were resigned to spending the winter on the ice, Shackleton was determined to use the time wisely, especially while there was still light. One of the first things the men did was to build shelters on the ice. Endurance had shut down her boilers to conserve their coal, and thus it was bitterly cold inside the ship. Also, the tents and ice huts offered more room and comfort than the ship. The freedom of the ice was also much better for the health of the dogs. And speaking of the dogs, in April, Shackleton decided to begin training them. He was determined not to repeat his past mistakes and not be able to control his canine teams. He would thus create six teams of seven dogs each. The men training to handle the dogs showed who Shackleton was planning to take on his epic cross-continent run. This included the following. First would be Shackleton, who had no intention of sitting out such a potentially famous trek. Second was Frank Wilde, Shackleton's rugged and trusted second-in-command. The third sledge team member would be Tom Crean, the decorated Irish sailor who is probably best described as indestructible. The other three men were George Marston, the expedition's artist, Frank Hurley, the photographer, and Alexander Macklin, one of the doctors. It was a good team, and you can see what Shackleton was aiming for in the makeup. With Wilde and Crean, he was getting hard-nosed men who would pretty much do anything needed to get a job done. The doctor was, well, just a simple necessity. As for Marston and Hurley, he wanted to document the trek. This was a way to make sure that everyone knew what they had done, and a key way to make some money after the expedition. One final note about the dogs. Fifteen would die that winter, all from worms. Despite bringing around 70 of the animals, no one had thought to bring deworming powder, and thus all the deaths. Now, there were a couple of litters of pups born, but these would become pets to the men of the crew, as they were actually playful and friendly. A reminder, sledge dogs are often ill-tempered, even vicious. They would fight and even kill the other dogs, and had to be watched closely. Thus, the pups would become a welcome distraction for the crew, and become beloved pets to many of the men. Now, as for the crew, Shackleton knew that he had to keep them optimistic and occupied. I want to point out that, at that moment, Shackleton and the men believed that they had to just wait out the winter and they would get out of the ice. It's not as if they thought they were doomed. Another important factor was Shackleton's insistence on routine, with meals and chores and duties done at the same time each day, that sort of thing. And regarding duties, everyone took part in the care and maintenance of the ship, the dogs, and the day-to-day -day activities, such as cooking. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. The scientists took their turn cleaning the decks right alongside the ordinary seamen. Even Shackleton took his turn. It was something that he believed in doing. He felt that respect was not earned by having a higher rank, but by shared sacrifice, effort, and example. We have talked about this in past episodes. Shackleton never insisted that his men call him Sir Ernest or Captain or whatever. There was no class distinction on his expeditions. All this made the men trust and respect him. I was talking to a Shackleton enthusiast, and he told me the story of a photo we have of the men of the Endurance dragging one of the boats or a sledge or whatever. And in the background, there's someone standing on top of a pile of snow as if directing the action. Well, everyone assumes the guy on the snow pile giving orders is Shackleton, but it's not. He's actually one of the guys down in the trenches hauling the boat. I love this story because it demonstrates Shackleton's honest motives and intentions and beliefs. When he said everyone works, he meant it and again, his men will love him for it. Anyhow, the crew of Endurance would make do as best as possible. Electric lights were set up around the ship so everyone could move around safely. Hunting parties would go out, bringing in penguins, sea lions, and seals, the fresh meat important for keeping scurvy at bay. Gathering food, as you can imagine, was a critical task. 
Seals and penguins and sea lions were plentiful at this time. One day the men counted 200 seals from their vantage point on the ship. The penguins were the easiest to catch. They were totally without fear on the ice, because nothing on the ice had ever threatened them. Thus you could walk right up to them, or heck, they would even walk right up to you. As March approached, the number of wild animals would begin to drop off as they migrated north for the upcoming winter. By the time darkness set in, the men would stockpile 5,000 pounds of fresh meat. This would feed the crew and dogs for three months. Now, despite all the work that needed to be done on the ship and the camp, the men still only had to work three to four hours a day, leaving them with a lot of free time. This meant that entertainment was a critical factor in the crew's mental and physical health, as well as morale. Shackleton wanted them engaged and busy, not just sitting around lamenting their situation. To this end, there was a gramophone for music, and the men organized plays and skits and singing, and the ship had many, many books. Frank Hurley, the photographer, would conduct what he called lantern chats, displaying many of the images he had taken from around the world. One of the crew's favorites were of the native women of Java. Leonard Hussey, the team's meteorologist, had brought along his banjo and was a regular source of entertainment for the team. In fact, Hussey and his banjo are another example of Shackleton's unique approach to building his team. He valued that sort of talent because he knew it would be needed in the darker months of living in the Antarctic. Much of this would take place in the area of the ship that the men called the Ritz. This had been a cargo area just below the main deck. It became the social center for the crew. In addition to the entertainment, the men stayed active, at least before darkness set in, by playing football on the ice, and they bonded by having a mass haircut, each man getting his hair shorn to the skull, which, it was noted, made them all look like convicts. As a result, the men would stay, for the most part, active and positive in their attitudes, but that doesn't mean things were perfect. Conflicts were bound to arise in such a situation. To counter this, it really helped that Shackleton had trusted lieutenants, such as Frank Wilde and Tom Crean. These men were tough and smart and loyal. They kept the men in line and knew how to put down the heavy hand when needed, something Shackleton was not always good at. One of the more problematic men was Harry McNish, who was the ship's carpenter. McNish, who had strong socialistic sympathies, was a bit of a sea lawyer. He was not afraid to challenge others and argue, and it made him a bit of a wild card. No matter, the men praised Shackleton's leadership during these times. Thomas Ord Lees, the expedition's quartermaster and a Marine, the only military officer released by the British government to join the expedition, said this of the boss, quote, Sir Ernest is the real secret of our unanimity, end quote. The weeks would pass, and in early May, four months of night came to the Antarctic. These were the most difficult times. The men remained confident the ship would survive the winter, but the constant groans and creaks of endurance were ominous. And of course, there was the cold, which kept the men confined inside the ship. In June, the average recorded temperature was negative 17 Fahrenheit, or negative 27 Celsius. The ship slowly drifted northwest, and snow piled up around the hull. And of course, the ice pressed in. As a reminder, endurance had not been built to be frozen in the ice. It didn't have a bowl-shaped hull, which, as ice pushes in on the ship, forces the vessel upward. Endurance had a traditional hull, which meant the ice pressed inward, which caused the ship to constantly groan and creak. In mid-July, in the midst of a fierce storm, Shackleton grew concerned about Endurance's fate. The pressure on the hull was growing each day. He even ordered his men to try and clear the piles of snow growing around the ship to help relieve the pressure. On July 13th, he met with Captain Worsley and Frank Wilde and had them prepare for the possibility of Endurance not surviving. Worsley was despondent at the idea, as losing a ship was the worst fate of a captain. But Shackleton was stoic about it all, saying, quote, What the ice gets, the ice keeps. End quote. Shackleton would keep his fear of Endurance's fate from the rest of the men, hoping he would be proven wrong. 
The next two months would be difficult ones, as storms constantly howled around Endurance, and the ice pack continued to press in tighter and tighter. Twice the ship would be put under intense pressure, as the ice flows would challenge the strength of the vessel's hull. Both times the men were sure the ship was going to be crushed. Beams and planks would bend, but not break. The ship, as strong as any in the world, was holding, for now. In late September, the crew of Endurance would spot a penguin, the first signs of life in months. It meant fresh meat, and more importantly, hoped that the ice would be breaking up. Still, by October, the creaking and groaning of Endurance was never ending. The ship had been assaulted by the ice for nine months, and there was no sign she would be released from her stranglehold anytime soon. Ice was building up around the ship like a wave pressing against the hull, and it grew every day. I want to mention that as winter waned and the temperatures rose, it offered both opportunity and danger for endurance. The ice would melt, which meant a chance for escape, but it also meant that the great ice flows would begin to move, and if the winds were unfavorable, those flows could be immensely dangerous. And on cue, on October 14th, the ship would, suddenly, find itself in a pool of water as the ice loosened its grip. It was the first time in nine months that the ship was afloat. The boilers would be fired up for a breakout attempt, but a problem would arise and the men would have to work to repair them. Shackleton then turned to his sails, hoping the strong winds would give Endurance a good shove. But all of it was futile. The ship wasn't budging. And then on October 18th, the ice flows would press up against the ship and not stop. Endurance would suddenly and dramatically start to tip over. In a mere five seconds, the ship rolled over to the port side 20 degrees. The men, of course, scrambled to save themselves and anything that wasn't battened down. When all was said and done, Endurance would find itself tilted 30 degrees to port. The pressure on the ship would eventually subside, and Endurance would right itself, but everyone knew that the ship was in a perilous situation. On October 24th, things escalated, and two large ice flows pressed against the hull in a way that none of the men had ever experienced. They knew something big was happening. One of the expedition's doctors, Alexander Macklin, said, quote, the whole sensation was of something colossal, of something in nature too big to grasp. End quote. Next, I want to read a bit from Alfred Lansing's book, Endurance, describing these moments. Quote, she was being crushed, not all at once, but slowly, a little at a time. The pressure of 10 million tons of ice was driving in against her sides, and dying as she was, she cried in agony. Her frames and planking, her immense timbers, many of them almost a foot thick, screamed as the killing pressure mounted and when her timbers could no longer stand the strain, they broke with a report like artillery fire. End quote. I love Lansing's description. It makes the moment so vivid, as if you were there, a witness to the struggle and the death of endurance. As the ice pushed in, men reported seeing two-foot-thick walls bow inwards half a foot under the pressure, and then the ship buckled and water began to pour in. Desperate to save endurance, the pumps were started. However, they were frozen, so boiling blubber had to be poured into them to get them working. Shackleton ordered everyone to evacuate the ship, all the while trying to save Endurance and anything of importance from inside the vessel. For three days, the men fought, nonstop, to keep Endurance alive. It was a desperate and hopeless endeavor. Three ice flows were pressing against Endurance. They grew bigger and more powerful each day. One ice flow grew so high, it pushed ice onto the deck of the ship. Photographer Frank Hurley said of the threat, quote, closer and closer the ice wave approaches. He then later added, the ship is doomed. End quote. Alexander Macklin, who had gone back into the ship with Frank Wilde to retrieve some lumber, was terrified as they crawled through the ship's interior, saying, quote, I don't think I have ever had such a horrible, sickening sensation of fear as I had whilst in the hold of that breaking ship. End quote. 
Amid the frenzy, the men of endurance were amazed at Shackleton's calm, even as the ship was slowly crushed. Ord Lees, the quartermaster, said, quote, For most of the time he stood on the upper deck holding onto the rigging, smoking a cigarette, with a serious but somewhat unconquered air. End quote. And then as the ship sank lower and lower, it was clear she could not be saved. The men gave up the pumps and word spread to abandon ship. Frank Wilde said to the men, quote, She's going, boys. I think it's time to get off. End quote. And so that was it. Endurance was mostly gone. She had drifted in the ice about 550 miles or 900 kilometers. Much of the ship was now submerged, ice piercing its sides. Some parts were crushed. It was only a matter of time before the ice and sea claimed the rest of the once proud vessel. Shackleton would gather his 27 men in a makeshift camp about 300 feet or 90 meters from the dying Endurance. He thanked them for their hard work these past three days, their calmness in the crisis, and their devotion to their duty. He then said, quote, Ships and stores have gone, so now we'll go home. End quote. It was a simple, if understated, and confident message. He then laid out their situation and the plan forward in an honest and open fashion. The men would pack up their gear and supplies, plus two of Endurance's lifeboats, which had been saved from the ship. They would then walk across the ice to Paulette Island, which was about 345 miles away, near the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. In 1903, a Swedish ship had been trapped and crushed in the ice of the Weddell Sea. The men had gotten to Paulette Island before being rescued the next summer. The rescue ship had set up a supply depot on the island for any other ship that might get stranded in the area in the future. Ironically, the man commissioned at the time to purchase those supplies was Ernest Shackleton. Anyhow, that was Shackleton's plan. They would walk across the ice to Paulette Island, hauling their boats and sledges with them. When they reached open water, which was inevitable, they would then take to the boats. The island would offer them food, plus a location that would allow them to signal the whaling ships that came to the region. Now, this idea was not as easy as it sounds. The men were on a stable ice flow for the time being, and it was drifting toward Paulette Island. But at some point they would come to open water, and that is why they had to have the lifeboats from Endurance. They could not count on the ice to just take them up to the coast. I want to note that the ice the men stood on was only about 10 feet thick and was not that stable. It could crack open unexpectedly at times. In fact, on the very first night on the ice, the flow would start breaking open on three different occasions, forcing the men to scramble to move the boats and dogs and supplies to a safer location each time. Another thing about the ice was that it wasn't just a flat surface. You can see photos and film of the landscape that surrounded the men, and it reminds me of the Badlands in South Dakota. There are icebergs 50 feet and higher, and walls of ice a dozen feet high and hundreds of feet wide. It was more like a field of ice blocks of wildly varying sizes, dumped randomly for miles and miles in all direction. And you may ask, how do all these ice blocks and walls get formed? Well, what happens is that the ice flows press into each other, sort of like a slow-motion crash. It is millions of tons of ice pushing together and rising up as one and forming a kind of tent. Higher and higher the ice climbs into the air before one ice flow crashes down on the other. These are called pressure ridges. These sorts of things are all over the Weddell Sea, great obstacles for the men. And with that, Shackleton gave orders for the men to get ready to march. Each man was to carry two pairs of mittens, six pairs of socks, two pairs of boots, a sleeping bag, a pound of tobacco, and no more than two pounds of personal gear. To emphasize the latter rule, Shackleton set out some gold coins and his gold watch and cigarette case onto the ice. He then took a Bible given to him by Queen Alexandra, and after ripping out a few pages, added the book to the pile. It was a dramatic gesture, emphasizing the need for everyone to sacrifice. One of the few exceptions to the two-pound rule for personal gear 
was Leonard Hussey's 12-pound banjo. Shackleton insisted that it be brought along, as he felt the music would be essential to maintaining the men's morale. And while Shackleton demonstrated calm and confidence in his men, deep down he was very afraid for the lives he needed to save. He would write in his journal, quote, I pray God I can manage to get the whole party safe to civilization, end quote. This reveals something about Shackleton that I have only touched on in the past. He took the responsibility of men's lives very, very seriously. To lose a man was one of his greatest fears. He even had nightmares about it. In fact, sometimes he was so careful, he earned the nickname Cautious Jack, or Old Cautious. It was an interesting facet of Shackleton's personality. In England, it was often as if he didn't have a care in the world. Yet on an expedition, he was intensely invested in the safety of his men. Thus, he did not make decisions lightly. At the same time, when he did make decisions, he threw himself into those choices, and he was more than happy to take the biggest risks himself. So before departing Endurance, some of the men would put a Union Jack on the ship's forward yardarm so that the vessel would go down with their colors flying proudly. Also, one of the crew, Thomas McLeod, a superstitious man, would go back and get the Bible Shackleton had left on the ice. He thought it was bad luck to cast aside such an item. Before departing, there would be one final distasteful duty to be done, and that was regarding the dogs. Shackleton ordered the pups and the weakest of the animals to be shot, as they would only take up food that would be needed by the men. Also, the ship's cat, Mrs. Chippy, was also shot. Shackleton was afraid the dogs would see it and go into a frenzy and try to kill it. Mrs. Chippy, by the way, was actually a male cat, but had been named before its sex had been determined. And the cat was the personal pet of Harry McNish, the expedition's carpenter. The man was grief-stricken over the decision, and he would never forgive Shackleton for ordering the killing. The killings, which were carried out by Tom Crean, put a pail over the entire camp, as the pups were beloved by many of the men. 28 men and 49 dogs would set off on October 13, 1915. They hauled with them their sledges, which were packed with food and supplies, as well as two of Endurance's three lifeboats, the latter weighing in at around a ton each. Thomas Ord Lees, the marine officer, would scout the terrain or dash between the two boats on his skis. The man was an expert skier, and Shackleton was amazed at how easily he glided about the ice. I do not doubt Shackleton watched the man moving around so effortlessly, and wonder what might have been had he used skis on the Nimrod expedition. No matter, despite Ordley's prowess with the skis, progress of the men was painfully slow. With temperatures warming, the snow was soft and the sledges were constantly bogged down. The men sometimes found themselves in hip-deep snow. And again, this was not simple flat ice they were on. The men would have to go around, or over, icebergs and ice walls. At times they even cut holes into the ice walls to get the boats through. It was a painfully slow process, and on the first day, they only managed to go a single mile. As they had over 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, to go, and only about two to three months of food, well, that just wasn't going to cut it. The next day, the progress was even worse, and Shackleton abandoned the idea. Slogging across the ice just wasn't the answer. Thus, a more stable ice flow was identified, and a permanent camp was set up. This would be called Ocean Camp. As the camp was just two miles from Endurance, Shackleton allowed the men to go back to the ship to fetch supplies that they had been forced to leave behind. This included a third of Endurance's lifeboats. Also, they pulled nails out of the planks and collected timber for future carpentry needs. They also got rigging and canvas and other supplies, and they even managed to bring back three and a half tons of food. Another thing the men rescued from Endurance's icy hold were the photographic plates of Frank Hurley. Hurley and Shackleton selected 150 of the best images to take with them. The rest of the plates, 400 in total, were smashed so no one would be tempted to go back and try and retrieve more of them. 
So as the men settled into Ocean Camp, the plan was to wait for the ice to break up and then take the boats and sail to Paulette Island. But no one knew when that would actually happen, so they could only wait and try and keep busy. Teams would constantly go back to Endurance and salvage whatever they could find. The men were confident they were going to find a way home. Shackleton's optimism was a key part of that belief. Pierce Blackborough, the stowaway, said this of the boss, quote, His hopes and ambitions had been shattered, yet he was cheerful and went out of his way to impart some of his cheerfulness on others. He had a genius for keeping his men in good spirits. And need I say more? We loved him like a father. End quote. I think that says so much about Shackleton. He was the calm in the tempest, firm yet compassionate in the face of adversity. I also can't help but stress the importance of his top officers, such as Frank Wilde and Tom Crean. These were hard and efficient men who got things done. Shackleton had all the confidence in the world in the two men. Now I want to bring things to a close for today by taking us to November 21st, 1915. The men had brought word that Endurance was not long for the ice, and Shackleton and some others went to see the vessel. As it turned out, Endurance would have one final show for the men. The ship moved noisily as it started to go under, and Shackleton called out, quote, There she goes, boys. End quote. The ship's stern rose up 20 feet into the air, the propeller hanging there for several moments. And then, slowly, she sank into the sea. Within a minute, ice had formed over the break and had swallowed the ship. Endurance was gone. Captain Worsley would say Endurance, quote, put up the bravest fight that ever a ship had fought before yielding, end quote. It had indeed been a long and brutal fight, but the ice usually wins, even if the ship is one of the strongest ever constructed. The loss of Endurance had been a long time coming, but as she slipped into her icy grave, it cut off the last link to civilization for the men. There were no more books or records or trinkets to be saved, no more supplies or gear to be salvaged. Ernest Shackleton and the men of Endurance were now alone. And that is where we will wrap up our story for today. As I have said, even now the men were optimistic about their future. They needed the ice to break open and they could take the three lifeboats to the Antarctic Peninsula and get to a place where they could be spotted by the whalers that would eventually come to the region. In the meantime, the men would work preparing the boats, keep an eye on the always unstable ice, and hope the drift would take them closer to land and not out to sea. Now, I do want to make one comment about today's episode regarding our intrepid star, Ernest Shackleton. Today, Shackleton is revered by many people for what he did on this very expedition. But one of the ironies of this is that we see that Shackleton is often the maker of his own messes. He went into the Antarctic knowing the ice was the worst in years. He had been warned repeatedly to not do so, yet he ignored those warnings. Also, he could have made winter camp at Glacier Bay, but he did not. And in doing all of this, he risked getting endurance trapped in the ice, something she was not specifically built to do. This is something about Shackleton that is frustrating. Throughout his life, he was so eager to do things, he dismisses the stuff that could have helped him succeed. But it's hard not to admire Shackleton when the chips are down. It's weird, this guy who struggled to navigate the real world simply transformed in a time of crisis. Ah, but hindsight is twenty twenty, and I don't want to dwell too much on the what-ifs of things. With that said, next time we will follow Shackleton as he and his crew wait for the chance to make a dash for the Antarctic coast, even as their situation gets more and more desperate with each passing day. And we will also spend time with the Aurora team, who have been charged with laying supply depots from McMurdo Sound to the base of Beardmore Glacier. So there you go. That is it for today. I want to give a big thank you to all of the show's supporters. I get messages from you guys nearly every day, and I appreciate all the kind words. It really is special. And thanks to all of you who support the show by giving us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That is so great. Again, thanks. 
And finally, big sloppy kisses to our financial supporters. Some of you have gone to the website and just sent a donation. Others have joined our Patreon program. I want to thank you all. This includes such people as Eileen, Dave, John Paul, Philip, Ralph, Craig, Adam, Roger, and so many others. Thank you. So there you go. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I look forward to seeing you next time as we continue this epic journey. Thanks again. Please take care. I wish you and your loved ones good health. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.